but I think it, it all comes down to to what we want in our own lives. So something that I always ask myself in terms of veganism and in terms of my life are, are questions like, do I like violence? Do, do I want it in my life? Do I want other people to have it in their lives? And the, the answer is always no. So, so then the obvious choice is to go for the non-violent thing and to go for the, the thing that's the kindest. I've, I've had like huge fights with ex-girlfriends and I've had like unpleasant moments with, with other people in my life. And, and I've learned that, that that's not the way to go at all. So I, I think I've applied that to, to everyday decisions. And, and now that I've been awakened into things like overfishing and veganism and social injustice and all these things that I've now I care about, um, it's just the obvious thing to do. Hello, veggie mates. Welcome back to the show. You just heard from this week's guest, Alfonso Gomez. I'm your host, Matthew Davey, and this is the Veg Talk Podcast, a show where we chat with inspiring leaders from the plant-based and vegan community. It's been a big week for us in Mexico. We've moved away from the mainland, caught the ferry over to Baja, California, and after some time in the southern part of Baja, we're moving north on the lookout for some cooler weather. We'll be traveling from Guerrero Negro up to Portland, Oregon over the next couple of months. So if there are any people you'd love to hear on the podcast who live on the Pacific Coast of the United States, please let me know and I'd love to reach out to them, get connected and record a podcast for you all. Big thanks to the listeners who have taken the time to leave a rating and review. So shout out to Mexicana in Boston who left five stars and said, Love this. I recently made the switch to plant-based food. This podcast has been really helpful and informative. So I'm really stoked to hear that. And uh, yeah, congratulations on making the switch across to a plant-based diet. Really glad the podcast has been a helpful resource for you. If you'd like to make a review of your own, it's super easy and can be done through the Apple Podcast app. Select the VegTalk podcast, scroll down, tap the stars you'd like to send our way, and then a little further down you'll see a button that says write a review. Super easy, only takes a couple of minutes and is a huge help for the show. Appreciate everyone's support. Now for this week's show with our special guest, Alfonso Gomez. So not knowing what to pursue at university and what career path to take in life, Alfonso started to create small ventures for himself outside of the classroom. Documentaries was something that stood out in particular to him and this ultimately led to him joining forces with Sea Shepherd, the very well-known ocean conservation group who have vessels around the world. We chat about bycatch, a term used to describe the animals that are caught up in fishing nets but are not going to be used for food. How much of the ocean's plastic is actually made up of fishing nets and what Sea Shepherd are doing to help. There are certainly some damning stats and questions we need to be asking ourselves if we truly want to align our values with effective ocean conservation. Much of the work today is around plastic straws and other single-use plastic items, which is fantastic. However, if we don't stop actually consuming the creatures we're trying to save, these efforts will ultimately be a waste of time. You'll also hear Fon's journey thus far how he landed on creating, on creating films and his fascinating time on board the Sea Shepherd boat in Baja, California, Mexico. I hope you enjoy this conversation. 
And as always, I'll catch you on the other side to wrap things up. All right. Beautiful. If you can hear the sirens in the background, <laughs> we're in Mexico City, guys. Um, yeah. This is the first podcast recorded in Mexico City for, for Veg Talk English. Nice. So, yeah, stoked to be here with Alfonso Gomez, guys. He is uh, a filmmaker here in, in Mexico. Um, he's got an amazing story to share with you, and I am really looking forward to it. So, thanks for giving up the time at short notice no, today, mate. Thank you for, for inviting me. I'm very glad to be here on both Spanish and English podcasts. Yeah, I think you will be the first guest to appear on both as all well right. so I'm you're bra- breaking all all sorts of records today yes um but yeah thank you very much man you're a, you, you know you've got some personal projects that are taking up a lot of time at the yeah. moment so for you to yeah to be here is is really special so i suppose you know getting into uh your story it's always good to to start a little earlier and, and hear what it was like growing up where you yeah. grew up um, yeah, and just sharing a, a little bit about your life. All right, yeah, I was uh, born and raised in, in Mexico City. Uh, very lucky kid. Um, grew up in suburban Mexico City. And um, as the lucky guy I am, I went to, to school. Um, this, it was a Christian school. Um, and I just really enjoyed my time as a kid. I, I practice all kinds of sports. I, I played football, uh, the real football, you know, soccer, um, since I was a kid, and I still practice it today. Um, I could take up uh, music lessons. I, I was very close to becoming a musician when I was a teenager. I uh, did it all, but a bunch of different stuff, and I traveled inside Mexico as well. Uh, when I was a kid, I, I, don't, I don't remember much, but I have a lot of video evidence, like VHS, uh, that I would play back um, later on um, so yeah I was a pretty norm- normal kid you know nothing like very special happened to me I didn't have any any sort of life-changing experience I mean I have had those those things but they happened later on um, so it was, it was very normal like growing up uh, yeah it's not a special story but it's just um, just the way it happened I had the opportunity to live abroad in New Zealand for one year um, I turned 16 there, so like I think when things started changing was when I was a teenager. Um, I think puberty hit me twice as hard as it does to normal normal people, and um, yeah, I just started questioning things, and and a lot of like life changing events started happening. Um, for for the negative part, like I started failing at school a lot. And I was very confused. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up, you know. Uh, and yeah, that's that's when I think things uh, started shifting. And and yeah, I, I stayed in Mexico City, did university here. And I think um, after I turned like 20, I think everything started changing a lot. I feel like every year that passes is, is a new life for me. I, I've evolved and changed so much. And and that's been the most interesting part of my life, I think. Um, that's a cool little snapshot of your life. Yeah. Let's let's unpack that a little bit a uh, little bit more. So, music. Yeah. Sounds like an important part of your life. Yeah, sure. Um, what instruments did you did you play? What were yeah. you yeah What were you kind of excelling at? I I started uh, playing drums. Um, I took like seven years of drum lessons. 
and after like my first year of of taking lessons with with a borrowed kit like a, a borrowed drum set um i got my own and i started practicing a lot i had a couple of bands uh they were all terrible but we were having fun which is the important part uh then i started taking up uh, guitar I started with acoustic guitar and then i did electric guitar and I, I did the switch actually in new zealand i sold my drum kit to buy my first electric guitar which is the guitar i still own and still play every once in a while and i would sing and play guitar for for most of the projects i actually recorded a cover album um, before starting university um, since i was failing at school i didn't have any money uh, so that was like my way of of surviving for a while did this this like 13 track album uh, which was a lot of fun and I really did consider studying uh, music um, right before finishing high school but my life was so unclear in that moment that I didn't know which steps to, to take I wasn't even sure if I wanted to do that so I just let some time go by and and at the end just kept music as as something that I really enjoy and that's filled my life in so many ways but um, I don't really want to do that for for a living like I, I'm gonna keep playing and learning and whatever but but I've, I've found other things that fill me up uh, more for sure for sure it's it's a confronting decision at yeah. a young age isn't it yeah. where you know around the world it, yeah it doesn't really matter where you're from but like at the age of about 16 mm. it's when you know you're getting closer to the end of high school and people start asking you yeah oh what what do you want to be yeah. What do you want to do for the rest of your it's life? So much pressure, man. And it's a very anchoring decision as well. And yeah. I think that could be potentially be what scares young people the most. Young people are very used to being free and in their decision-making and their time and how they spend their time. And then all of a sudden, it's this decision that yeah, for sure, it's going to be the rest of their life doing yeah. one thing. I know for me personally, that kind of always... I've always questioned that. Uh, as a young guy and you're a creative guy as well so the yeah. idea of modern day life as a as an adult is very you know uh, anchored to a desk yeah so what did what kind of decision making did you have as a as a teenager at that point right so um i started i uh, thinking about going abroad to to the u.s to play football and get a scholarship so I did this whole uh, program with a person that would link me up with coaches in different schools. And even before doing my SATs, I already had um, some offers from different universities asking me to go play for them and study there. The thing is that I didn't, I didn't know what I wanted my major or my minor to be. I didn't know what I wanted to spend my time uh, doing. I was so confused. I, had, um, I, I, I was thinking of doing architecture, but then I bought my first architecture book. I didn't even open it. Like, I, I didn't know. I think you're so young, you don't know anything. Like, even now I'm 27 and I still, I'm still figuring it out, you know. I'm still trying different things because there's so many things in the world. Um, after thinking about architecture, then I, I, I said music, but time had gone, gone by. And this whole process of, you know, getting into universities and the age restriction, you know, it's very tight. And... Uh, like I told you, I was failing at school, so I, I was failing math specifically. And everyone got graduated from high school, um, but like me and other three guys who didn't didn't pass math. Uh, so I couldn't graduate for a year. 
And that's when I turned, I think it was 19 or something. And at the end of that year, I could resit and I could do the exam again, which I finally passed. Uh, and it was time to, to go to university. But all, all the people in my in my year had already started university one year before. Um, so I did this whole like vo vocation test where they do like a psychological test. And uh, it's just like a the last resource for, for troubled kids and in that age. Uh, which is a very norm normal thing, I think. Um, and that's when I, I got some results of doing communications and marketing and things like that. And and I had the opportunity to, to enroll into, high, into university, so I did, and studied communication and marketing. But it was purely like a... It wasn't a, con like, it w it wasn't a conscious decision. It was just like what was there, like pre-written in this, in this path, you know, like... You, you go to university, then you get a job, and then you settle down, you know, which is like the, the normal thing to do. Um, I just did it as a reflex, you know. If, if, I, if I had to, like, look back and if I had the opportunity to try again, I'm, I might not do that, you know. But it was just like the reflex. It was the right thing to do at the moment. And that's what just, um, it was like a domino, domino effect from there, from there on. Cool. So where did university lead you then? Right, so I, I since the beginning I felt like I was behind a little bit because I I would see my my friends people I grew up with that ha had had um, one year ahead of me right, and that's how how I saw it you know it's it's a wrong way to see things I think, but that's how I saw it back then so I I felt this small pressure of of doing things with my life, since I felt like I had wasted that one year between high school and university. So I started looking for jobs and internships and I, I just started trying so many things. Uh, I remember I, I did like a, an unpaid uh, digital marketing internship. Then I jumped into editorial where I was writing for a magazine. Um, and then I, I did my own projects. I started this clothing company, which led me to do food with that same company. It was like this creative duo that I had with a friend, like a duet. Where we would make projects every once in a while. We made hand-printed T-shirts. Uh, we made food. We also made this booklet for the most important contemporary art fair in Mexico City and Latin America, I think. Um, and then I jumped on to doing like a. I had this like super vanity face, and I started this men's grooming company with a friend of mine. We would cook everything in our kitchen. We did like beard balms and. And mustache wax and hair hair balm and all that stuff. Oh man! Uh, <laughs> and this is all outside of university. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I hated university. Yeah. Yep. That's a detail I, I I forgot to mention. I I never enjoyed university, um, and it would take up so much of my time, and I was miserable at that time. Like I wasn't enjoying it. I was I didn't feel that the courses I was taking were giving me anything. Uh, I, I I wasn't feeling like better at all. Uh, and I thought to myself, look, university life is now 100% of my life. And I, I spend 50% of my time in university and I'm miserable. So do I want to be complaining the other 50% or do I want to do something about it? So, yeah, that's when I started. I, I always had uh, part-time jobs. So I would go to work and then go to university. And on my, on my spare time and on the weekends, I'd have these projects. Um, and, yeah, that's... Like, I, I was very curious. I was always trying new things. I was never afraid of of stopping that project completely and just, just dropping it, setting it aside and starting something new. Uh, we started this, 
like cultural blog where we talked about um, music and arts and everyone could create their own username and write whatever they wanted to write. We would just moderate before they, they got published. I was actually in charge of, uh, I was in charge of the restaurant section. And that's when I started like mapping out Mexico City. Uh, I was taking a, a cinema course with this very important Mexican director, director called Michel Franco. He's won a couple of Cannes uh, Film Festival awards. Very, very nice guy. And it was in this part of Mexico City that I wasn't very familiar with. It's actually close by. It's Roma. Um, Where we were yeah. last week. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I would go there. It was a whole summer. So I would get to Roma, to this neighborhood, a couple of hours before the course. And I would just walk around and I would map different things and take photos of of restaurants and try maybe one, two dishes so that I could then um, talk about them in the blog. I think that's when, when it all started and, and I started getting um, super curious about culinary things and just whole mapping out um, areas in Mexico. Really cool. So with university, even though you, you know, you weren't loving it, it kind of yeah. drove you to look elsewhere. Yeah. Were there any parts of university that, that you did like? Did you get to travel with university? Did you, you know, kind of get to use it wisely while you were there? I had only a couple of, of teachers that really changed my perception uh, inside university and outside. I could, I could apply what they taught me inside school and outside. Only a couple. One of them sort of backstabbed me at the, at the end of the course. So he ended up being like a friend and a foe. Um, but yeah, I met a, a bunch of very interesting people, especially classmates, like one of my best friends who's actually my climbing partner at the moment. Um, I met him in, in university and I also met my, my business partner um, for the ONG that we have at the moment. Um, so yeah, those relationships couldn't have happened if it, were, if it weren't for university. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't really think about the, the good things that university left me. And I, I guess that's a very unfair thing to do, but... But I guess, I don't know, it, it kind of helped me to to do this elimination process, you know. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when you get asked, what do you want to do? You don't know, like you can't pick one, one thing. But I think one process that does help is to to take all these things that you don't want or that you don't like. So then it's easier to choose, you know. You, you get rid of all these things and then you're left out with all these other options that are good. Absolutely. Yeah. I think from what you've just told me, you've you've put yourself into a whole bunch of different situations. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that has allowed you to say like, okay, that might have been fun, but I don't want to do that for a yeah. career. Yeah. Um, I hate this. I'm definitely not going to do that. Yeah. But I'm starting to enjoy this more and more. So let's, let's go towards that for a little while. So yeah. although on face value, it might not seem like, um, you know, you've got a lot out of university, it does sound like it, it, it put you in the right direction yeah. in a very indirect way but yeah. sometimes you got to go that route yeah so that's that's really cool um yeah so how about berlin i understand you went to, yeah. to berlin what was that like it's a pretty alternative city yeah man um was it a, a culture shock what was it like leaving mexico city to to go to berlin and, and what were you doing there so i was 
I was doing an exchange program with my university and I didn't want to go very far away. I, I, um, I don't know why I, I was thinking of going to the U S since it was like the closest thing. And I could, I had, um, a green card back then, um, because my father had worked in, in Dallas and we spent a lot of time there before. Um, so I thought that I couldn't leave the continent, uh, because of like, political reasons or like you know documentation and stuff and i found out that i that i couldn't and, and i have a very close cousin of mine who was he he had like a lot of curiosity for european culture and he was like dude let's go to berlin and i was like man i, I i'm so bad at, at at languages like i i i didn't find anything curious about i didn't find anything interesting in europe because i didn't know it well it was pure ignorance i was obsessed with like asian uh, continent and with New Zealand and all those like faraway countries. But anyway, um, he he uh, convinced me to go to Berlin, and we didn't do much research. We just went ahead uh, and and like uh, started living day by day. Uh, we would go to this university, which was it was like an international school. We we took a bit of German, but other than that, we would um, yeah we would learn everything in English and. We did get to know a lot about the city. Uh, I mapped out uh, Berlin as well. Um, so we would go to different coffee shops and restaurants and museums. We did a lot of culture, a lot of contemporary art, um, a lot of history, a lot of the, the history with, with the Holocaust and the German uh, history. We also went to Poland to see um, Auschwitz, the biggest concentration camp. Um, and yeah, we traveled inside Europe a little bit because... Um, Plane tickets were super cheap and we could go for a weekend to Ireland and then come back. And we, of course, we made a bunch of friends from different parts of the world, which was very nice. Um, and we still keep in touch with, with those people. That I think this was four years ago. Um, but Berlin is such a nice city. It's it's a bit anti-system in a lot of ways, which is something that I'm, I'm really curious about and I really liked it. Um, I think there there's a huge vegan scene in Berlin, but I was so blind at at that time that uh, I didn't even know what it like. Yeah, I didn't get the chance to to explore it, but uh, I did leave a couple of things behind so I could go back um, every time. Yeah, I think Berlin's a cool. Have you been? It's a cool. Yeah, I've been a couple of yeah. times. Again, I wasn't a vegan when I went there, uh. so uh, for me, also blind to that kind of. Yeah. Um, you know that scene in in Berlin, but now what I've what, what I've learned about veganism, I think a lot of the time, exactly what you're talking about, this anti-system mm. punk scene, it often feeds the vegan scene. So, yeah. uh, what I've learned in like New York, Melbourne, mm. from interviewing and talking to people, you know, in those cities, is yeah. vegan scenes are often fed by exactly that. It starts with some kind of movement yeah. outside of veganism, but it aligns with their values. I think it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Like they, they go along super well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, cool. Cool. You got to experience Berlin. Yeah, it was nice. It's n For me, it's not like the most beautiful city in the world, mm. but it's definitely very rich in history, yeah. culture, super interesting place yeah there's everything and there's a bit for everyone you know 
like if you want super expensive meals and like very posh areas you've got it if you want like super uh trashy like there's there's cash only establishments that i'm i'm like 90 percent sure they they're like uh, pulling the finger to 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 the government like we're not gonna declare taxes or i don't know yeah um the street art scene is amazing the tattoo and and the veganist movement like what i've read um i think it's it's strong and i like that i really really like it absolutely so where did that leave you where did that leave you after experiencing you know new zealand mexico city berlin university all these different little side gigs that you'd you know you'd done along the way uh what was next well i think they all started to shape me in a, in a lot of forms and and it's when i came back to mexico city that i had spent almost two years at an editorial um firm and that's when i really started questioning everything um what I was doing for money, um, what I was spending my time doing, um, who I was spending time with, what I wanted to do with my life. And I started like cutting down to a lot of things. Uh, my, my vanity went away. Um, I started getting into meditation and, and I started to really look around, uh, where I was standing and the things that I had and the luck that I had, um, and the place I, I had been born in, you know, without doing anything uh, for it. Um, and yeah, I started doing some 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 uh, changes. I I left the, the work I was in. I, I went into this um, publicity firm where I was also like exploited, even though they were paying me well. And that's when I it all stopped. Like I always wanted to do uh, filmmaking and traveling. Uh, I actually started a video vlog channel when I was in my exchange in Berlin, I would upload a video, I think every week. Um, and that's when, when the whole film thing started kicking me in the butt. And, and yeah, I, I started doing some, some shifts and, and I think I started having a more intentional life. I wasn't just um, swept away by the current, you know, taking me somewhere I wasn't in control. Um, and was was yeah. there anything uh, were there any topics or um, any genres that you were interested in with film straight away or were you doing yeah. kind of general stuff? No, um, since the beginning, I, I've always had such a, a tough time with fiction because it's, I don't know how they do it, man. Just having a whole movie inside their head with dialogues and with everything, it's so hard for me. And and what I've realized is that I really like uh, the, the authenticity of, of documentaries and I like everything as natural as possible like I've never used um, artificial light and I try to do everything as real as possible I feel like very guilty if I'm if I'm staging something um, last year uh, when I was recording my first documentary I wanted to to document this this indigenous culture in Mexico in the northern part of Mexico called Raramuri they're like the world champion uh, ultra marathon runners uh they're amazing and they're super interesting but i i spoke to a bunch of, of people who could take me to their communities and when they offered me like the whole package you know yeah they're gonna do this traditional um ritual and they're gonna cook this traditional food and they'll show you their their games and what they do 
and and when I found out that it was all staged, I even though it, it represented me like like cutting um, this part of the the documentary, which which it was important. Uh, I decided to not to not do it because it wasn't authentic. It wasn't real. It wasn't happening. Um, so yeah, I think the the authenticity of documentary is what I what I like to do, and um, yeah, that's that's what I think I'll do in the couple of next in the next years. Yeah, I've always been personally drawn to documentary. I think I've yeah. spoken about it in previous episodes, yeah. but if if we're watching documentaries on Netflix. Anna will be like, do we have to watch another documentary? Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm very drawn towards them. And Anna definitely likes to split it up with, you know, with fiction in between. Yeah. But I could watch documentaries all day. Yeah. So the, the group that you were talking about, um, are they similar to the Taramahara? Is that how you, pre- I think that's yeah, the wrong so pronunci- pronunciation. Yeah, but yeah. It's very interesting because Raramuris, mm-hmm live in the Tarahumara mountain range. The mountain range is called Tarahumara, but their e- ethnicity is Raramuri. So it's just a mis... Um, how do I say this? It's just... Uh, you don't say Tarahumara as, as a person. Like yep. He's not a Tarahumara, he's a Raramuri. They just live in this area, right? Gotcha. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting because uh, there's a book called Born to Run yes. by Chris McDougall. Yeah. And he refers to them as the Tarumahara. Yeah. Um, so so it, yeah. I think in English you could say that because they're they're the Tarumaran people, right? They, mm-hmm. they live in this in this area, but their ethnicity, like even in their language, Raramuri uh, is like how they identify themselves, uh, like light light feeded. Yes. A, so an amazing community. Yeah. Um, that I suppose has caught. What's caught a lot of people's attention yeah, through, recently, yeah. through the book, yeah, um, and through this ultra community, yeah, where, yeah, these people would start coming, going to races, yeah, in America, rocking up in like sandals, yeah, when we're so used to wearing like all the newest, yeah, man. gear and the and the shoes and superfoods and yes, they run on tortillas, beans, and chia, yeah, and look at them go, man, so. What got you there in the first place? What what was the catalyst for you wanting to do this documentary? Right. And is it the documentary that you're yeah, yeah you're working on now? Yeah. So, um, yeah, let's just go into that a little right. bit more because that's that's a super fascinating kind of uh, journey that you got on. Yeah. So so this whole thing started when I a couple of years ago I I started to feel very disconnected from my own country. Um, like I told you at the beginning, I, I'm a very lucky guy who has experienced different cultures. I've been to Asia, I've been to Europe, I've spent uh, more than than a year in New Zealand, things like that. And but I felt like very, like I didn't know where I came from, and I didn't. I was very embarrassed of of no. I, I know this is a very privileged thing to say, but I felt embarrassed of knowing an island of inside Iceland, but I I've never been to the southern part of my country, and and i've spent time in cambodia but i've never been to a library which is a very famous library in mexico called las concelos and, and i felt very disconnected and i wanted to to do some traveling inside mexico and to sort of get to know um what i'm made of and and to reconnect with with my country and my roots so i was going to do it anyways but i i decided to do to 
try and do this dynamic like a little bit more interesting. So I did a uh, Kickstarter campaign where I asked people to vote uh, in exchange of money. Like they would buy votes and they would they would vote for any state inside Mexico. And the state that got the most votes, I would go and spend a month there uh, with no previous um, no previous research. And I would just um, come back with a lot of information and document whatever I found for a single month. So the, the state which got the most votes was Chihuahua. It's actually the biggest state in Mexico. So with no previous knowledge, only knowing that Tarahumaras were there, that was the only thing I knew. Um, I took my backpack, my, my old camera, and I went there for a month. Um, and I spent a, a month there. And that's the documentary I'm editing at the moment, just about to finish. Cool, man. When you got there, were you on your own? Yeah, yeah. I was on, on my own almost the whole time. My family knew uh, a family from Chihuahua. They were like childhood friends. And, and one of them hosted me for the whole month. But I was just I would go to the s southern part and then come back to to Chihuahua State. I mean to the capital, and I would just do like like short trips and then come back, um, just to like rest and get get more um, uh, to to get my footage in my computer. And I would just go out again and come back back and forth. And what were you hoping to capture from this group, from this tribe, from this you know? Yeah, right. kind of ancient group of people when you yeah. when you compare them to the rest of society. Yeah, so actually, I I, I didn't um, document Raramuris at all when I found out that everything would be staged. Okay, I actually, I I I did uh, run into a couple of Raramuris in in my month there, and and I I would speak to them, but only like for a few minutes. I didn't even point the camera at them. Only a couple of times. Um, only there was. They were actually two two times, and both of them were kids. One of them was very curious of my camera, so he like he he took my camera and we started talking, and and that was the the end of the interaction. And then we had a, a guide, like this girl who just wanted to show us the like a uh, the highest part of the Copper Canyon, so we could see the sunset. And she came along with us, and that's only one scene in the documentary. Uh, but I spent most of my time. Uh, going to different places not to, to places where Raramuris live so uh, there were there's actually um, I think Mennonites is that is that a, even a word not like sure Amish people okay um, they, they come from Holland and, and Germany and and they have like this huge like 100,000 um, people community in Guatemoc which is like a very random place for them to be um, yeah, I just went all along the state um, but it was it was mostly what I was trying to capture or what I was trying to do is to cure a little bit of the ignorance that we have of our own country. Mm -hmm. And the aim of the documentary is for for you to watch it, for example, and then in your next family gathering to say something like, dude, do you know that the Copper Canyons are four times like larger than the Grand Canyon in Arizona? And most people don't know that, right? I didn't know that. It's almost two times as deep. Um, so as long as you you take something away from it, I'm happy with, with that because... The, the documentary's name is The Ignorant, which, at the, like I am the ignorant, right? El Ignorante. So that's the aim of it all. Uh, and I think it could be like a start of, of something that I do in, th in the future. To, and that's something that I've been trying to do every single day to cure my ignorance a bit. 
uh, or as much as I can, to be honest, in, in all types of, of, of fields in my life. So did you feel reconnected? Yeah, a lot. Yeah. Actually, I haven't left Mexico in the past uh, two years, I think. Only traveling inside Mexico. I actually founded this, this travel agency with a couple of friends. And we would insist on taking people to Baja California, to Chiapas, um, to Paricotin, you know, the most ancient volcano in the world. Um, and yeah, I felt very, very connected to, to my roots and to the people and to everything. I've always had it inside me. It was just like, because I was growing up here and I, and I was observing and I had traveled inside Mexico as a kid and, and whatnot. Um, so I've always had it in me. It's just now I, I feel it inside me and, and, and I want to I wanna tell that story to everybody. It's quite, quite a beautiful story, man. <laughs> yeah, thank you, man. It's, um, it's very cool to hear, um, yeah, hear this evolution, mm. you know, where it started from and and where it's taking you now and just as a bit of disclosure guys i've heard this story twice <laughs> in spanish and i don't speak spanish so it's yeah quite amazing to hear it in in english for the first time as well where else has film taken you in mexico and yeah i'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about yeah some new experiences that you you've had along the way yeah, so I think the the most important and recent one is uh, my collaboration, not collaboration, but my 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 volunteer uh, volunteer work. Yep. With Sea Shepherd, this worldwide organization that protects and conserves the oceans, they have a, a campaign called Operation Operación Milagro. It's the fifth year that they do it, and and the aim is to protect the most endangered marine mammal in the world, which is the vaquita porpoise. And they're based in in the Sea of Cortez, and I spent three months uh, on board their the Farley Mowat, which is the ship that they own, um, just documenting the whole process of the campaign, uh, the volunteer work, um, the net retrieval from the oceans, uh, this whole problematic in terms of... of all that there is, you know, politics um, and social and this overfishing and the bycatch. So that was last year. And that's that I think that's been the most interesting project that I've been in, in the past in the ha past months. Or so how do you end up on a Sea Shepherd vessel? How, how does that come about? What you know, what was the process? What was the the urge uh, to, to try mm -hmm. that out? So the urge comes from when I turned vegan a year and something ago. Um, I'm the only one of my friends and my family who's vegan and who's so attached to that and so convinced. Um, and after a couple of months of being like very into it and doing a lot of research, and I, I guess I felt a bit lonely in the whole process and I felt like I wasn't helping out as much. I, I felt like I was very passive. And and I was because I think going vegan is the least that we can do. You know, just stop contributing to that. But there's still so much work to do. So I've I felt an urge to to do some some activism, something that was more hands on, and I could do, I could have a bigger impact than just stopping uh, that contribution, that economic contribution to those products. So a couple of years ago, I was in this rooftop in Oaxaca. Um, a beautiful city in Mexico, amazing city. 
and I took a photo with my old film camera. And when I put the camera down, there was this guy with a T-shirt on that said, um, conserve, protect, defend. And it had the Sea Shepherd logo. And I was there with a friend and she told me, you're going to love this ONG. You, you should look up what they do. And I did. You know, I followed them on Instagram and I, I would look at their videos and I would see all these warriors and like incredible people doing these amazing things for the oceans. And I felt so overwhelmed. Like I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm not that person. Like I'd love to be, but I'm not that guy. I don't have the film experience. Um, I've never been on a boat for, you know, longer than an hour. Uh, and just felt, yeah, I felt like very intimidated. And I even had the bookmark of the application form saved on my, on my computer. I would go on it, but then at, you know, when it was time to click submit or something, I would back off and I, w I wouldn't do it because I felt like I didn't have it in me. And I had this inspiration uh, attack once where I, where I thought to myself, like, why the hell do I not have, like, I'm not there, right? At the moment, I'm not there. Uh, what what would happen if I applied? Maybe I get in, maybe I don't, but at least I've tried. Um, so I did. Uh, I submitted my application and I got a call like a week after. Uh, asking me to, to to join the ship and they were like when can you board the ship like can you come here tomorrow and I was like can you give me like five days or something because I had already rented an apartment and everything and they were like yeah sure you you know handle your things and then come here and so I did that was that so where were you leaving from and where were you going to I was leaving Mexico City and I was going to a town called San Felipe which is in the north part of Baja California it's on the right side of the map. It's the Sea of Cortes, just a couple of hours down from the border of, of Mexicali, which Got is the, 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 the capital of that state. Um, we would be there on that, on that, um, on that area. Uh, there's this whole um, coordinate um, area called the Vaquita Reserve, and that's just where, where it's illegal to fish. That's where we would patrol every day. Got it. I think something that you referred to alluded to there was the kind of the imposter syndrome feeling so how do you tell yourself you know we we often hide behind not hide behind but we often have a company that we work for mm. and we say oh yeah i'm a journalist or i'm a i'm a salesperson yeah you know or i'm a a film you know i'm a, a cinematographer for for Disney or whatever okay. it might be, but you've got that company to kind of uh, hide behind. How do you tell yourself as a self-made filmmaker that you are? How do you tell yourself that you believe that you are? Because it sounded like the only thing stopping you from really applying was not believing that you were a filmmaker, even yeah. though you'd started doing your own projects, um, but you felt like you hadn't had the experience. How did you build up the courage to say, you know, all right, I'm, I'm worthy to be a filmmaker for Sea Shepherd? I think it all comes down to really wanting something to happen. Um, if I pick up a camera and I take a photo, I'm a photographer, man. Uh, that's, I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. And I did struggle a lot with this. I think that's why now... I can say it so easily. But if I write a poem, even though it's the worst poem everyone's ever written, I'm a poet. 
and and that's what it takes like right now you don't need to go to university for this you don't need to take a course you don't need to do anything you whatever you want to do you can do it um and even though it sounds cheesy it's the, uh, i'm convinced that that's the truth and i had done videos before i had edited films i had taken up a camera and pressed record and done something that someone else might have enjoyed it. And, and even if that wasn't the case i enjoyed doing it and i thought that i could give something uh, back through film um and yeah that's that's when i thought to myself you know why not um the worst thing that can happen is that i don't go in that boat but right now i'm not in it anyway so i might as well try and i've been doing that with a lot of other things um i even got criticized uh a while ago i don't know i don't know how but i found out that someone was speaking behind my back and saying that fun you know which is me uh watches a documentary and now thinks he's an expert in this or that uh, area or he he does something and now he thinks he's that and and i think well yeah why not you know if 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 you want to be a podcaster and you record audio and then you publish that and you cut it and you edit it then then you're a podcaster it doesn't take that much i, I mean i think we complicate things too much where it should be so much simpler totally yeah i love that i love that perspective i think the only places where you know you probably do need to go to university you know there are places like (laughs) if you know if i'm going to go and have surgery i don't want to have someone that watched gray's anatomy to you know cut me open and stitch me back up again but where you're coming from from a creative point of view that's what i thought exactly should say yeah it's um yeah, we do overcomplicate things. And I, I, you know, I feel you. I've definitely experienced that with like the podcast. It took me six months to start recording, even though it was in my head bubbling away yeah. uh, because of similar kind of uh, fighting in my head. So what's it like on Sea Shepherd? What, what's, a, you know, what's the life like on, on, on board? Yeah, so it's not as, as romantic as it sounds, you know, patrolling the oceans defending this endangered creature it's actually very complicated to be on board a ship 24 7 uh, with a crew that you don't know in an operation that is dangerous um, in an operation where there's so much things involved you know local fishermen and and the the army of mexico and the government and um, illegal fishing and there are so many things involved um, but it is it is one of the most rewarding things that i've done because I have seen the, the the horrors of fishing firsthand and and I've been in situations where my life is in danger but but that's the everyday life for animals in the ocean. So it's a very interest it was a very interesting experience to to like come to terms with what the real life in the ocean is like. Um we saw a bunch of like we would pull out nets every day, right? That was the the authorization that Sea Shepherd had in Mexico's in Mexico's oceans. We would pull up nets and every single time there was a dead animal inside. There was this once uh, w- one time where um 800 animals came out of one single net. Um and more than 700 of those animals uh were killed because of that net. Um so yeah, it's it's a it's very complicated, but it's it was also like I I felt like I was um doing some good 
by documenting this and publishing these videos and photos um, to people close to me and to other people that I couldn't have reached otherwise. Um, a lot of my family members and, and my friends back home uh, would now go into restaurants and think their decisions twice, you know, before making them. Uh, there are a bunch of, I don't know if you're familiar with the whole Totoaba and and uh, Vaquita situation, but uh, essentially what happens is that there's this fish called Totoaba. It has a swim bladder, which is worth um, thousands of dollars in the black market in China. And it's illegal to, f to fish it because it lives close to the vaquita which is endangered um but they weigh and they um and they're like the same size almost as the vaquita so the nets that are made for totoaba catch vaquitas um, by accident you know this bycatch thing um so that's why they're in so much danger vaquita is such a shy and it's a very delicate creature uh, so as 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 long as they get tangled, they're, they're most likely going to die. Um, but the thing is that this totoaba fish, um, you can find it in, in most seafood restaurants in Mexico. Uh, it's supposed to be from farms, so it, it's not illegal in, on paper. But people are still like very sensible to that. And they see totoaba in a, in a menu and... And they ask questions and, and they go like, okay, I'm not going to eat here if they're serving this, you know. So I think, yeah, there were a lot of, of positive um, outcomes from my experience in Sea Shepherd. Yeah, that's... That being one of them. I mean, seeing that firsthand must be quite confronting because mm. we hear, you know, we hear the stats, we hear um, things on the internet about the, the oceans being fishless by 2040 mm. but stats don't stats don't make us feel you know things for True. real yeah. it's like going to a slaughterhouse seeing cows and pigs and chickens arrive to the slaughterhouse versus seeing it on a film there is a huge difference in terms of the feeling can you can you explain what bycatch is and I'd love to hear a little bit more about the fishing net situation. So were you pulling up fishing nets that were like actually in use by fishermen's, fishermen um, or were they old fishing nets? Uh, and also a little bit about the waste in the ocean yep. and how much is actually created by fishing. Sorry, that's like a three-part question. Yep. But So we'll yep. do the, the, the first one. Um, the so bycatch. The bycatch. Yeah. So, so, so bycatch is... When you fish, say you put a net down and you're fishing, you're trying to fish tuna. For every pound of tuna that you get out, since there are other animals swimming around and living nearby tuna, you'll catch five more pounds of these other species that you didn't intentionally want to bring out. So it's like, Cowspiracy does this great job in, in, in the documentary where it, they like they put a, a a net in the in the savanna in like a, in the Serengeti desert or something in Africa and it and, and they say it's like if you put a massive net and you try to catch a giraffe but then you get a rhino and a and an elephant and a lion that's what it is um, that's the bycatch uh, the other part were the the nets the active they're actually called active or ghost nets the ghost nets have been abandoned for weeks or months they're just a waste of 
Alphanet said um, maybe they forgot or maybe they just cut out and left in the ocean. But those ghost nets still kill animals. And, he, and they're left behind. They're very dangerous because they're left behind and they contribute to this whole waste. Um, and they destroy the habitat uh, around around them. And they they get tangled. It's a mess. Actually, Sea Shepherd takes up uh, takes out ghost and and active nets. Um, ghost nets are huge. Like we would actually sometimes have to use a crane from the boat to get them out because the the manpower wasn't enough. Um, and you can see they've been there for for a long time. You know they're they're green. They have like sediments. It's like corals were like almost trying to. Uh, grow over them because they're like in the way of of the reef um and active nets you could see the difference because of the um like how transparent they were if they if you could see the nylon or the the materials um they would come out clean like clean but with dead fish which is uh and yeah they they there's a statistic that says that 46% of the whole plastic in the ocean is made out of nets so fishing gear, it's not straws, it's not plastic cups, it's not it's not bags, it's fishing, and that's a hard pill to swallow, but it's what it is. Absolutely. Is there any co- confrontation um, between Sea Shepherd and fishing authorities in taking out active nets? Yes. So not in fishing authorities. So what happens is Sea Shepherd works alongside the Mexican government. So they're always in communication. They know the location of the boat. They know the operation. Like they work alongside their allies. Uh, But in this specific uh, problematic, there is illegal fishing. So it's the whole black market of the Totoaba, which is involved in fishing inside this refuge. So there's actually a video that I made um, when we discovered a couple of illegal nets and three illegal boats were there. Two of them left um, when they saw us. They left immediately because they knew what was happening. They they, they had undocumented skiffs, uh, no name, no number, no, no plates, nothing. But one of them stayed. And when they saw that we started pulling out the net, first they came um, to like yell at us and ask us to leave and very unpolitely. Of course, we were taking out their their, their net. Um, so they went to the other end of the net. You know, they're usually um, put down by two anchors. So they went onto the other side of the net and they started pulling at the same time as we did. And there's actually one scene when you can see both of us pulling, like our crew pulling and then these guys pulling on the other end. And just as this Disney movie, the two dogs, what's the name? Where they they, yeah, they no, come close oh, with the spaghetti. Yeah. Uh-huh. I don't know. La Dama y el Vagabundo. I don't know the name <laughs> <laughs> in English. Um, the something in the tramp. Lady yeah. in the tramp. Yeah. Yeah. That. So just like that, our boats started like coming very close together. And when they realized that we, we had the strong hand and we had already pulled out um, as much as we, we could, they cut the um, their end of the net and they drove away. Um, that was a, a, a mild confrontation between illegal fish poachers let's call them uh and us but when i came back home after my three months there things started getting more heated and actually a bunch of local fishermen started attacking the boat 
they threw Molotov cocktails, they threw rocks and those lead balls that come um, from the nets. Um, some people even boarded our oh the boat. Uh, it was it was very very rough. Um, and yeah, Sea Shepherd stayed in. They're actually there at the moment. Like they haven't backed backed off. Um, but it did get very nasty because you. I think you're dealing with with illegal fishermen who are losing so much money. Like there's even a stat now that more than a million dollars has been taken away from from this black market by Sea Shepherd and the authorities. So, and that's all they care about at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, that's unfortunate. Obviously, that's. I suppose that's what's funding this whole world right now. Yeah, is that's it's all that's keeping these people in business is the demand. So for sure, we need to start going the other way in yeah. order for these people to stop. Um, it sounds simple in theory, in practice, obviously a lot harder in terms of uh, putting that into place. I feel like we could go on for a long time here. Like, I feel like, you know, there's much more I want to uh, scratch away at. Let's go something a little bit more lighthearted. All right. Like the food on on Sea Shepherd. You know, obviously an organization uh, that that cares for the oceans and, and defends animals in the sea. What kind of food do you guys eat there? How does it translate? Yeah, well, it's it's amazing food. Like, I got spoiled so much. Uh, it's 100% vegan ship, of course. Uh, they're actually one of the few organizations that is um, as coherent as, you know, they practice what they preach. Um, it was it was amazing food. Uh, the My first couple of months there were with this Australian chef, and she made um, pizza from scratch. And she made sushi and we had fresh bread every morning and we had fresh fruits and vegetables from the port. Mexico is a very rich country in terms of, of fruits and vegetables. Um, yeah, and it was it was amazing food. We would uh, we actually had a donation from Beyond Meat and we would have um, burgers every once in a while. And we had shepherd's pie and we had meatballs and spaghetti. It was it was amazing. <laughs> uh, I came back. And had to cook for my for myself, and it was a bummer. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the food was amazing. I actually uh, kept some recipes from from a couple of the chefs that were there in my in my in my three months, and I've been cooking uh, those things. So it's amazing. It's very good food, and and I was actually almost a new vegan, um, and it really helped out with my culinary things. Like some of the times when I finished my edits on the boat. I would go out and help in the kitchen, and I I, I learned so many things. Um, it's great. It, it was it was very nice. I can imagine having your own private chef for <laughs> three months. Yeah, doesn't help when you end up in <laughs> your own, in your own kitchen. <laughs> that's that's yeah. um that's because once we get the comforts of home or the comforts of, you know, whatever it might be, doing the complete opposite is often. It takes a little bit yeah. of effort to get the cogs going, the wheels turning to, you know, get back in the kitchen ourselves. Yeah. I think that kind of goes into our last topic that I just want to cover before we round out today. And that is the, you know, the the masculinity and, you know, what it means to be a guy, a man and a vegan. 
at the same time. And then on top of that, in Mexico, I yeah. think um, for the American listeners, the Australian, Canadian, English listeners out there, um, there's a different culture here in Mexico. Yeah. Um, with, you know, often, you know, middle class families even will have a maid in their home and they're used to growing up with food being cooked for them, uh, dishes being done, washing being done for them and, and not having to do that themselves um, on top of everything else. So I suppose that's a quite a large topic to unpack, uh, but how, how have you found it uh, being the only male in your family that uh, you know, is a vegan and likes to do the cooking, likes to, mm. you know, show people uh, that all this is possible as a Mexican vegan male. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, ever since I can remember, I've I've been like very in touch of my own sensitivity. And I think that's been mostly through film and through life experience where I've been taught to, to be nice to people and to be nice to animals and to just be as respectful as I can. Like I've had very strong family values. Um, but I've also lived in this very, very sexist and unfair country. And I think, no, I don't think, I'm sure even the world is very unfair um, to women. And the world has been designed to favor men like this average um, one meter and 60 or 70 centimeter tall guy like white male um i think it's all been programmed programmed for that and and i've been surrounded by women my whole life uh, there was a time where i lived with my mom and my sister only and then on my first editorial job it was me the owner who was a guy and then only girls so uh, since i can remember i've i've been speaking to a lot of of different women all, all the time and I've learned about their struggles and I've also shared mine so it's been like a an interesting um, exchange but I think it, it all comes down to to what we want in our own lives so something that I always ask myself in terms of veganism and in terms of my life are, are questions like do I like violence do, do I want it in my life do I want other people to have it in their lives and the, the answer is always no. So so then the obvious choice is to go for the nonviolent thing and to go for the, the thing that's the kindest. I've I've had like huge fights with ex-girlfriends and I've had like unpleasant moments with with other people in my life. And, and I've learned that that that's not the way to go at all. So I, I think I've applied that to, to everyday decisions. And and now that I've been awakened into things like overfishing and veganism and social injustice and all these things that I've now I care about um, it's just the obvious thing to do and and I found out that if that's the natural thing for me to do then I cannot betray myself and go um, towards the current of, of what this world is now programmed to do like even if I have to swim against it I'll do it because I think it's the right thing to do um, so I'm not going to tell you it's been the easiest thing because it hasn't like there's always somebody questioning what you do and there's some always somebody saying like oh man come on you care about uh, a chicken you know there's thousands of chickens that are killed every day they're bred for food and 
there's always people who gonna, who are gonna go against that but um I, I I think that I cannot betray what I feel and what I think so I've really um stood my ground and tried to spread the message as kindly as possible like I've I've even had um moments where I feel like s such impotence and I've tried to like yell out at everyone like come on guys wake up you know this is happening but it's all been a process and now I realize that there are like like smoother ways to go and I've been trying to to break all these stereotypes of what it means to be a man you know if men don't cry I cry all the time I watch movies and I cry I cry having conversations with my friends and I'm not afraid to do that because that's part of who I am and I think vulnerability and, and sensitivity is something that everyone has to have in their lives to get like to a higher place in terms of of what you do every day and the decisions that you make i don't know it's a tough it's a tough um subject to to just um put out on the table uh, but i think it's worth it 100 percent. i think think things work out way nicely if if you're in touch with all those things that I mentioned. Well, my friend, <laughs> I think that is a great place to wrap this up. I feel a part two coming on. I think I'd love to yeah, whenever, man. sit down with you again and, you know, pick up some different topics and, and discuss them. Uh, you've had an incredible life to date. Uh, the way you go about things is amazing. And mm -hmm. I think you're leading the way for not only your fellow Mexican um, compatriots, but also the rest of the world, man. You know, some of the, the things you're talking about is so important that we take the time to, um, to look into our, you know, our own lives and, and question things yeah, so sure. that we can move forward. So thank you for your time again. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank I you, can't man. wait to... Um, to put this out into the world. Uh, so yeah, until next time, mate, thank right. you very much thank and good you. luck with, with everything. Just before we go, where can we find you and when can we expect the documentary and where can we find the documentary? Uh, so I'm always on Instagram. It's at Alfonso Gomez and I have a blog, which is fongomez.com and the documentary will be, will be out in a couple of weeks if everything goes out nicely. Beautiful. I'll let you know. And I can let everyone know about that as well. Thank you, man. Thank you, mate. Thank you so much. Hey, guys. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you have a couple of minutes now, please take the time to leave a rating and a review. It really does help the show, and I appreciate your help. From my conversation with Fon today, it's clear that the biggest thing we can personally do to help the oceans and animals who call it home is to stop supporting the industries destroying the ocean. So in order to reverse the mess we've created, we can't really continue to live the same way and expect the problems to miraculously disappear. Change starts with us guys and is much simpler than we build it up to be. If you have any questions from today's show, please hit me up on Instagram at VegTalk. That's V-E-D-G-E-T-A-L-K. And I'll continue the conversation with you over there. You can find Alfonso on Instagram at Alfonso Gomez and also over on his website, FonGomez.com. Thanks again for taking the time to tune in today. Share and rate the show. 
It truly is amazing to have your support as we work to bring you more conversations from guests changing the game in the plant-based and vegan world. I'll catch you all next week for another installment of Veg Talk. Keep it plant-based, folks, and I'll see you then.